Welcome to Houston Sports Talk with your host, Robert Land. Thanks for listening to the best Houston sports podcast. And if you missed our conversation with Steve Sparks last week, you missed a hell of a show. Make sure to go back and listen. Sparky always comes through with awesome stories. He did it again for us the other day. And joining me is my co-host, Stephen Kerr. And between the two of us, we've covered sports for 60 years and have been fans for over a century. But Stephen You and I have never experienced anything quite like sports being canceled indefinitely. This stinks, man. Stinks. It really does, Robert. And I I really, I I guess that's true for all of us. We've had work stoppages as far as, you know, labor disputes, 9-11. There was a brief stoppage, uh, you know, with Major League Baseball and the NFL. Uh, You know, of course, there are other situations where, certain teams uh, like with hurricanes coming through through with uh, Katrina and Harvey, but man, nothing like this. I mean, this is definitely unfamiliar territory, especially, you know, if you're going weeks without any sports, I mean, we're, we're talking all the major sports, pro college individual. I mean, you know, I, I enjoy watching golf and I can't even watch PGA or LPGA for unless I'm, I mean, now it's gotten down to watching old games and, and I've done that a couple of times. But honestly, it's just not the same. Right. And, and and I've tried to do the best so far with this show, just kind of keeping you guys away from, you know, some of the major depressing stuff that's going on and, and not making it about that. We we hope to not make it about that. There there, there are a couple of stories that we got to mention because they're Houston related stories as far as the connection with everything like that. And some of them are, are, are positive. Uh, we're going to get to later, but there's some also some not so positive stuff with that. We, we, we've got some really good news for a Houston legend coming up later this week. But uh, Stephen, the, the one thing that I, I will say is that, you know, with, without sports going on, you kind of realize, Hey, w- why do I have cable again without sports? My cable is, is the feels like it's all because of sports. They have got me basically handcuffed to uh, cable. I guess I'm kind of a, a different animal as far as that's concerned, Robert. I, I don't. Well, first of all, I don't have cable. I have YouTube TV, and one of the reasons I got it is because a, it's cheaper, and b, it, it just mainly has the channels that I'm interested in. But believe it or not, I didn't get it so much as much for sports as I did for just other things I like to watch. You know, I'm more of a radio sports play-by-play person. I always have been. Obviously, I do watch some on television. So I guess for me, it's, it's not that much different, but but I still kind of feel it. I I did, just before this thing hit, I, I did make the mistake of subscribing to ESPN Plus uh, because there's a whole bunch of stuff I was starting to watch on that, you know, that was live. And, you know, now even that, it's, it's you're kind of having to scrape and scratch just to find something to watch on something like ESPN Plus. All right, well, let's get to what's going on. And there was a crazy story this past week, the first the very first Houston Texan ever, Tony Baselli, he nearly died from the virus. He spent five days in ICU at the Mayo Clinic, said he remembers the pulmonologist saying, quote, if we don't get your oxygen stabilized, we're going to have to go to the next level. And Baselli said he remembers lying there thinking, what do you mean if this doesn't work? And I'd say that's serious, Stephen. Hmm. Yeah, that's just definitely not something you want to hear. And you know, talk about scary situations. You know, when you hear about 
either celebrities or, or athletes that have gone through this stuff. Yeah, some people may not remember, as you said, Tony Baselli was the first Texan selected, and you know, but but he never played a game with them just because of the, the health concerns he had. He just never could get past it, and there was a lot of criticism about whether the Texans should have maybe done their homework a little bit more. And this, of course, was back in 2002. Well, there's a whole story behind that because uh, he was selected because they made an, a sort of it was a deal that was made under the table saying, hey, you can you guys can select Baselli and we will allow you to draft. I, I think they might have only been able to draft one other Jaguar player, but basically they allowed they got allowed to draft Gary Walker and Seth Payne because the Jags wanted out of Baselli's contract since his career was basically over because of that serious injury. It was kind of a deal that was worked out. So there's some criticism, but you had to sort of know the behind the scenes machinations on, on all that. Exactly. I mean, as I said, it, there was criticism mainly obviously among the fans and, and the media just because he never played a game. And it was obviously the, the first selection in their history. So, but you know, you just, you hate to hear something like that, but at least he did pull through and that's, that's the main thing he pulled through. So, uh, you know, kudos and, and best wishes to uh, Tony Baselli and his family. All right. There's another former Houston athlete that that he didn't pull through. And I'm going to get to that towards the end of the show. And some of you might not even remember that this guy was in Houston for a cup of coffee. But we need some good sports news. And miraculously, we finally found some good sports news. Rudy T. Finally. And I, with a big emphasis on the finally, finally, finally made the Naismith Basketball Hall of Fame. And Stephen... He's going in with a couple of no-names, Kobe Bryant and Tim Duncan. Uh, I don't know if you've heard of those guys, but hey, Rudy, Rudy's used to getting overshadowed. This almost seems apropos that, that he gets overshadowed here. Well, you know, and it does. And, and the funny thing, Robert, is isn't it amazing how one line of a speech, you know, whether you're talking a political speech like, say, from Martin Luther King's dream speech or John F. Kennedy's, you know, what can you do for your country speech? Isn't it amazing one line of a speech can define you, you know, years after you made it. And Rudy T., of course, I'm referring to the line he made right after the Rockets won that first championship. Never underestimate the heart of a champion. Isn't it ironic that Rudy T. has been underestimated and underappreciated all these years by not making the Hall of Fame? Well, he's not underestimated anymore because finally, as you said, he's in. Couldn't have happened to a nicer guy. Couldn't have happened to a better guy. And, you know, what's great about Rudy T, I, mean, I, I grew up watching Rudy T when I first started following the Rockets in the early 70s. You know, it, it was Rudy T, Calvin Murphy, Kevin Coonert, all those guys. And Rudy T was a staple of the Rockets. And then he got, of course, coached the team to the two championships that the Rockets won. So, yeah, I was definitely putting my two hands together repeatedly when I read that Rudy T was going to get the call. He's in the hall. And besides, of course, the two titles as the Rockets head, head coach, he's a hell of a player, a Michigan Wolverine. He averaged 25 points and 14 rebounds over three seasons at Michigan. He was a five-time NBA all-star as a player, somehow came back from that Kermit Washington punch to his face that nearly ended his career and ended his life. But Stephen, a few years back, we talked to old Houston Rockets beat writer Robert Falkoff, who actually wrote Rudy's biography, he explained the details about how Rudy very reluctantly accepted the head coaching job in the middle of the season. It's an incredible story, and I'm going to let Falkoff pick up the story from there. 
It was a mid-season game. The Rockets had uh, had lost a big, big lead to the Timberwolves, and the team was kind of slipping and sliding all year. I guess the next morning at 8.30 in the morning, Steve Patterson had gotten a call from the owner at the time, Charlie Thomas, and Charlie just said, I want to make a move. Uh, we're going to change coaches. Uh, they had a meeting. They called in the two assistants, Rudy T. and and Carol Dawson, Rudy told me this uh, later that, you know, they had some small talk and they talked about the game the previous night. And finally, Steve just said, hey, guys, uh, this is over. Don is out. And we've got to have a head coach. We've got to go forward. Rudy and Carol were very loyal to Don Chaney. You know, they tried to argue for Don and it just wasn't going to work. And the Spurs had just changed coaches not too too long before that. Bob Bass was the general manager, and he took over on an interim basis. And then Steve just stood up and said, hey, guys, we've got to have a head coach. I'm not Bob Bass. You know, I'm not going to go down and, and coach the team. And so, yeah, it was uh, pretty much it was decided that they, they wanted Rudy to take it. And Rudy was reluctant to take it. Um, he was very content to have had a great playing career and to be an assistant coach and to be a a Houston guy, but he talked to uh, to Carol, and, and, and basically they, they just decided, hey, if you don't take this job, Rudy, we may not have a job at all because, you know, they'll just they'll b- go get somebody, and then they'll bring in their own assistants. At least this way, you know, we have some continuity. And so from that, uh, kind of a, a, a moment of desperation, you know, Rudy Tomjanovich became the head coach of the Houston Rockets. Very very much out of character with the ambitious head coaches that, that that will just do anything that would you know do anything to get a head coaching job. And Rudy never campaigned for it, never even wanted it. He just took it because he he had to and had a loyalty to the organization. And then, of course, you know as we see, the rest is history. And a few years later, um, you know he's holding up the trophy. Oftentimes he's he's called a player's coach, and is that kind of dismissing his his coaching acumen? And then why do you think he was the perfect match for the Rockets at this time in their history? He was a player's coach, but he did it in such a way that you know he didn't believe confrontation was the way to get the most out of a player. He because he had been a player, and so I guess he knew how he reacted to, you know, the browbeating coaches, uh, instead of berating a guy, he would say, hey, Vernon, you, you know, you did this well, you're so quick, but if you play the pick and roll this way instead of that way, you know, look how much more effective you would be. So he would use that and try to try to always have the back of his players and feeling that that's how he would get them to play the hardest for him. And so... um you know that was his philosophy. Other guys do it differently, but uh, he believed in 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 how he wanted to go about things, and he had a you know a really uh, different personalities on his team, and he tried to punch the right buttons on all of them to get the most out of them. He had a great once in a generation player and a Kimolaj one, and then he had the supporting the supporting cast which fit. He had a philosophy about spacing. They played inside out. They took it into Akeem. And once Akeem became a passer, and I think that's that was a key in their evolution from, you know, content, from pretender to contender, is that they played inside out and they got three point, good three-point shooters. 
And once a team would draw the double team and they would move the basketball and they would get, you know, good looks from three, they would make them. Uh, if teams then tried to go back and guard a three-point line, a, a, a three-point line, a team with wheel and deal, nobody could stop him at that time, one-on-one. And so they had a they had a great uh, a great mix. And so you know, Rudy was the right time, right guy at the right time. Outstanding background from Rudy's biographer Robert Falkoff, who was a guest with us a few years ago. And Stephen, I guess you can say sometimes. The right man meets the right moment. Well, that's really it, Robert. He was in the right place at the right time. That was something a teacher always told me is, you know, when you're going to be successful, it's not what you know, it's who you know, and you got to be in the right place at the right time. And Rudy was, that was certainly the, the, the case in both instances. And yeah, you know, it's interesting. He was talking about, uh, you know, the ISOing. Uh, you know, Rudy was doing the, the ISO thing before it was even cool and it was successful. And that just shows you how smart the guy was, not just as a player, but even when he became a coach and, and talking about pushing the right buttons and getting the most out of every player. You know, that's the mark of a true coach. You can have the best talent on the floor or on the field, but it still takes a great coach to make you, you know, maximize that talent. And certainly Rudy T did that. He did it with the Rockets. And he also did it, of course, with the U.S. Olympic team on a couple of occasions. Yeah, I heard Brian Winhorst uh, be kind of a gas bag the other day because he was talking about, you know, there's Jordan uh, 30 for 30s coming out soon. So they're talking about Michael Jordan. He's, ah, you would have, you know, probably would have won eight, you know, if he he hadn't gone into baseball. And that uh, we know that all of his Rockets fans know that's a bunch of crap. And he actually played Brian, just uh, if you forgot, he did play in 1995. He was in the playoffs against the Orlando Magic. And, you know, he scored 55 at the Garden that season when he came back. So he was doing fine. You know, Michael Jordan was fine. I am so tired. I I am so tired of hearing people putting asterisks by both of the Rockets championships. First of all, you know, that's something that you're never going to know. And second of all, the head-to-head between the Rockets and the Bulls, the Rockets actually beat the Bulls on a number of occasions when Michael Jordan was playing, including in that 95 season. I, there was one game I remember watching. They they beat them like a drum. I think it was like, I don't know, 18 to 20 points. I, I just, I get so tired of hearing people, whether it's media, fans, whomever, of, of other teams, of course, trying to put an asterisk on both of these championships with the Rockets. You know, it, it, it's, there, there is never a sure thing in anything. And the Rockets earned those championships. You know, it's not their fault that Michael Jordan decided not to play in 94. So, yeah, I, I get really been out of shape when people like David Winhorst, who I don't really follow him much anyway, uh, say things like that. Also, I mean, when we talk about Rudy, we got to talk about the fact that it's just one of the best human beings. I mean, I, I was working for the Rockets back in 2001, 2002. And so I got to be around Rudy. We did a story actually at his ice cream shop, Stucci's over in the Greenway Plaza area. He had that, that ice cream place and we went over there and did a whole thing where Rudy just played along with us. We we did a deal where uh, Rudy was going to come in and get mad at Jeff Hagedorn, who was doing the story, uh, and he was as he was putting trying to put ice cream on the ice cream cone, and he he wasn't going to get it right. And so Rudy comes in there and diagrams how you put the you know he gets out the whiteboard and then diagrams how do you put the ice. If you want to see this, just go to YouTube. Just type in Rudy T. Stucci's. I put the story up there. But that was Rudy. He play, He would play along. He was, yeah, I just remember that when the story ran, I was standing next to him 
at uh, I was standing next to him at the old uh, compact center. And Rudy was this is before the game. And Rudy was laughing throughout the story. And he looked at me. And he told me what a good job it was. And, and frankly, there, there wasn't much that I did that year that was more important to me than finding out that Rudy liked the story that I did with him. And that was fun. Wow. That's a, that's a great story. And, you know, Rudy, of course, was roommates with Calvin Murphy. And, you know, in books I've read about Rudy T or about the Rockets, there, you know, so many stories about him and Calvin just going back and forth with each other, playing pranks on each other, just all kinds of, and, you know, their personalities couldn't be more different. I mean, Rudy does have a sense of humor, but He's certainly much more laid back than uh, Calvin Murphy was and, and is. So, you know, it's an interesting dichotomy between those two. But, yeah, it just such a, a fun guy and and just a, a great guy. And I was just so happy when I heard he finally made the Hall of Fame. So that 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 was definitely the highlight of my week in, in a time that we need all the great news we can get right now. And let's not forget, I mean, it, it's not just that he won two championships – his four out basketball with Akeem and the spread the floor, it, it basically is a prelude to what we're seeing today. He, 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 he helped change the game. He's how many teams over the last 30 or 40 years was able to win a championship with just one all-star level player, one superstar. He did that in 1994. So whatever you want to say about, uh, well, they didn't, you know, they didn't do it with Michael Jordan. They didn't, they did it with one superstar which is it's nearly impossible to do over the last 30 to 40 years in in basketball one all-star one superstar and then the next year he he basically has a revamped team it's a totally different team he goes in with uh, a six seed in the playoffs and not only that you look at the teams that they beat it's not when you're the 60 six seed you got to beat teams one after the other that have won a ton of games and Practically all of the teams that they beat in that playoff run had about 60 wins. I think the Magic might have been the only team with under 60 wins. I want to say they had 57, but I, I seem to remember that everybody else was either 60 or right there close to 60. I mean, it was a, a, an all-time – you've never seen anything like that in the history of basketball. It wasn't just that he won two championships. It was how he did it. Well, that's right. And, and that second championship, yeah, the Rockets really struggled for a part of the season. And he, as you may remember, you know, the trade that brought Clyde Drexler over, obviously around the trade deadline was, even though that Clyde and Hakeem reunited, you know, it had been several years since they played with each other. And Clyde had to get familiar with the Rockets and how they were doing things and it, you know, the Rockets did struggle for part of that season. They came on, of course, when they had to. But I think that second championship, honestly, and, and the way they swept the Magic in the finals, you know, I remember game one was, was one of the craziest games you ever saw. Was it uh, Nick Anderson that missed those free throws that, you know, Orlando probably should have won that game. But th- that second championship, I would say, was more remarkable even than the first one. I mean, the first one, it, it, you know, it's like you never forget your first level. You never forget your first championship. But that second one, the Rockets really had to scrape and scratch to earn it that year. Right. And you're doing it with Vernon Maxwell basically quitting on the team. And you're doing it with trying to incorporate Drexler that came around the trade deadline. It was February, the, the famous, I guess, Valentine's Day, February 14th trade, yeah, right? it was the Valentine's Day trade. Exactly. And so, yeah, you, you did it basically with a bunch of role players. And then you had Hakeem and Clyde. So, yeah, I'd say that the second was even more remarkable than the first one. Yeah, including... Chucky Brown having to play like who is Chucky Brown, but he was playing a, a major role as a starter at, at points or, 
you know, they, they, it was just kind of pieced together. It felt like, and Chucky Brown, former, former uh, guest on the podcast, but yeah, it, it's, it's unreal. It's unreal what he was able to accomplish. Absolutely. It's just, uh, I don't feel like it's ever been really embraced nationally what he's, he was able to do, but obviously, I mean, Houstonians, you don't have to explain to them and they, they know the history. Well, and, and again, I think it just goes back to what I said earlier about how you can have all the talent in the world, or sometimes you, you may not have the most talent, but if a, a coach can, a, a great coach anyway, can get the most out of his players and sometimes even go beyond that. And in that second championship year, Rudy did more than get the most out of his players. I mean, he had them playing over their heads just because the names you mentioned were mostly role players. They came through when they had to, and he, he definitely got the most out of those guys. Well, outside of Bum Phillips, it's hard to imagine a more beloved Houston coach than Rudy. And on the other end of the spectrum, and we'll get to our next topic here for this one, is one William James O'Brien. Stephen, you and I haven't done a show with the the two of us since the DeAndre trade. I don't think I need my magic eight ball to predict what you thought of the deal? <laughs> <laughs> well, no, probably not, Robert. I mean, I'll be honest. When I when I first heard the trade, I, my reaction, my initial reaction, was probably the same as everyone else's: shock and disbelief. And and then my second thought was, okay, so does this mean that if Deshaun Watson suddenly starts getting unhappy because the the Texans are trading away all the good players, and if he starts voicing his opinion, does that mean they're going to trade Deshaun too? They're not going to sign him for the long term? I mean. You know, nothing was out of the realm of possibility, I think, initially, <laughs> when you're talking about the reaction to the trade. And it's still garnering reaction, not just from the Texans fans and the local media, but it's received a lot of criticism around the country, the national media, you know, even really around the NFL. I, I guess the, the biggest gripe that I have, Robert, other than the obvious, is what the Texans got for DeAndre Hopkins. Look, if if you can trade Stefan Diggs for a number one pick, are you telling me that Stefan Diggs is a better receiver than DeAndre Hopkins? I don't think so. I, I mean, how the Texans managed to only get a second round pick this coming draft for DeAndre Hopkins and not a first. Yeah, I know the Cardinals, they're, they're picking high in both the first and second round, but I'm sorry, DeAndre Hopkins is worth a high first round pick. Certainly, if, if not this year, at least get one the following season. So it was as much what they got for him in exchange as the fact that they traded him at all. Right. I mean, I don't think you're saying anything that we all haven't discussed over the last right. few weeks. Yeah. Let me let me say something in addition to that, though, that maybe hasn't been talked about much. You know, trades, again, and until the Texans play a game, we don't know how this is going to play out. And I will say that most trades aren't as great as they're cut out to be or bad trades aren't always as bad as they're cut out to be. So there is the hope, you know, the, the only way that you're going to erase this bill O'Brien is the Texans are going to have to prove they can win and go beyond what they have before without Deandre Hopkins. I, I mean, I'm just, you know, the jury is still out on every trade really. No, 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 no. This trade, the jury is out. It's out. It's out. Look, we okay. Here's I don't want to get sidetracked because I I, I wanted to get back to Bill O'Brien and, and this sort of stuff. But let's just say we're going to table this discussion and, and we're going to talk big picture Texans as we should uh, in, in as, another as we episode. Should. We're going to do that in another episode. But I, I want to get to just the vitriol 
towards Bill O'Brien because it leads us into this subject, which is the top five. Who are the top five most hated Houston sports figures? And I mean most hated by Houston sports fans, not nationally. And that leaves the question to me, Stephen, is O'Brien just your unanimous number one at this point in Houston history? Well, this may surprise you, Robert, but my answer is no, he is not. He's in there. He's up there, but he is not my number one choice of the most hated Houston sports personalities. Give me your number one then, because this is shocking me. All right. My number one is Jeff Luno, and I'll tell you why. Look, Jeff Luno has tarnished the Astros' reputation. I realize he wasn't alone in this whole cheating scandal, but he was certainly the, the, the leader out front of everything, and the way he's handled it before, during, and after – and just the whole Astros culture, he has tarnished the Astros' reputation for years, decades to come. I mean, yeah, the Astros will move on. The players will move on. They'll get new players. But I'm telling you, you know, the Black Sox scandal happened in 1919. And 100 years later, people are still referring to it. And the same is going to hold true for the Astros. With Bill O'Brien, you know, to me, the worst thing Bill O'Brien has done is just make a lot of bonehead decisions that – may or may not, you know, people may or may or may not agree with. But in my mind, Jeff Luno is on my list of number one, the hated Houston sports personalities, simply because the, the Astros cheating scandal is, you know, Bill, Bill O'Brien, we, we can sit and criticize him, and, and rightfully so, for his clock management, for the fact that he's been given so much power with – you know, and not really earning it with the kind of record he's had both in the regular season and the playoffs. But Jeff Luno, in my mind, trumps all of that. So you think Houston sports fans hate Jeff Luno more than any other anybody else in the history of Houston sports? Well, I, I mean, it, it remains to be seen. I'm just telling you my personal list. I, I You know, Bill O'Brien is, is probably going to be, you know, the majority is probably going to say Bill O'Brien. But that's where I am on the thing. It's just the, the seriousness of what has happened here just to me trumps all of that. My whole thing with this list is not the person that I hated the most, but I'm just kind of going through who Houston sports fans hated the most. And I, I don't even think it's close because I, you look, Jeff Luno, you can go out and find Houston sports fans and go, I don't care what he did. We won a championship. And Jeff was the reason why we won a championship. There, there are tons of Houston sports fans that think that, and you might not like him personally, um, but I, I think, I, you know, it's one of those deals where even me personally, I go, yeah, I, I there's a lot of stuff I don't like about him. There's literally nothing I like about Bill O'Brien because at least Jeff was, for the most part, competent in his job. And I've never really felt like Bill O'Brien was fully competent in the stuff that he, he's easily the number one. You literally cannot find anybody on Twitter where Twitter, there's always a contrarian. Go find somebody on Twitter that's going to say, well, but Bill O'Brien, but I still like him, but I still love that guy. <laughs> I just don't think that. No, and I, and I don't disagree with you at all. And, and believe me, he's he's neck and neck my number two. Just in, But but I'll tell you, I mean, uh, when we get to number three, I'll kind of tell you, you know, why I, he may not also be number one. But look, Bill O'Brien is, uh, there's still things that, he, he, you know, like I said with the DeAndre Hopkins trade, I mean, the Texans have yet to play a game, so we don't really know how this trade is going to turn out. DeAndre Hopkins may suffer a major injury this coming. I mean, heaven forbid. I'm not wishing that on him. But 
Yeah, it's just the 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 whole thing of he you know he has been given this power. I, I, hold, I want to I want to add hold on I want to I just end this okay. If DeAndre Hopkins look if he if he has a major injury I don't care. It was still an awful trade. It's a twenty seven year old player that's the best receiver in the NFL who's got three years left on his contract and a, and a CBA that says if you try to hold out you're not going to get a nickel back. Nobody's going to be holding out anymore. I mean, that's not going to happen unless you just don't like money. And it's a terrible trade no matter what happens in the future because guess what? You could have gotten a first-round pick. You could, you didn't have to get David Johnson, who was a crummy. You could have just waited. They would have cut him. You could have got him for like a two million, a million or $2 million a year. That's a given. Well, that's why I just said it's it's what they didn't or it's what they got back for him that I had to, as much as the trade itself. There's no scenario where this works out not 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 zero. It's there's they screwed it up royally because he didn't get enough for what he got. Even if you say it wasn't worth, you know, I I I didn't want uh, I didn't want him around because you know he, he was bad for the team or he was whatever. It, it, I don't know what the, what the hell could his his reasoning be. But the bottom line is, you, 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 it's never going to be right because, look, every other wide receiver in recent history has got that's any good has gotten you a first round pick. Like we would look up north, Dallas gave up a first round pick for Amari Cooper just last year. You got you, you go to Odell Beckham, there was a first and third round pick for him just last year. I, Odell Beckham, maybe you can argue he's as good as DeAndre Hopkins. There's no, there's absolutely no way you can argue that Amari Cooper was even close to DeAndre Hopkins. Well, that's why I said as far as Stefan Diggs, you know, even he was worth a first round pick. And I certainly don't think Stefan Diggs is better than DeAndre Hopkins. But no, I don't dis- I don't disagree that it was a bad trade. Not at all in, in regard to that. Yeah, you just said but, it, there's a scenario where it works out. No, there isn't. There's not a scenario. Well, okay. We will we'll table that for future. We'll we'll see how the games play out. You're you're probably going to be right. Uh, my number two on the list. Uh, uh, this is an easy one for me too because I didn't think anybody was ever going to beat this person out as the most hated Houston sports figure, Bud Adams. And, and the only reason I had Bud as second to Bill O'Brien, I, I maybe could find one or two people who still liked Bud. I don't know why, but nobody in Houston. I mean, nobody likes O'Brien, but Bud. I mean, this is somebody that moved the team. He basically fired Bum Phillips, the most popular Houston sports figure in the history of the city. I mean, I cannot explain how big Bum Phillips was when he fired him after three straight playoff appearances, after losing to the eventual champion three straight years in the playoffs, after taking a team that was garbage and one of the jokes of the league when he took over and making him into that. It beloved around all of the NFL, respected around the league. And this was somebody that not only did that, but also just said, hey, guys, uh, I, I know I made you uh, refigure the Astrodome and spend all this money redoing the Astrodome, but I still, want a new, I still want a new stadium. And if I don't, I'm leaving town next year. And then he left town. Yeah, Bill O'Brien was my number two. So uh, my number three was Bud Adams for, the, for all the reasons you just talked about. I mean, Bum Phillips, you, you could say, you could put him and Rudy T, they'd be neck and neck as far as the most popular coaches any Houston sport team has ever had. I, I'd probably give the edge to Bum Phillips. I mean, just growing up in the Love You Blue era, there was nobody, certainly no coach, who was more popular than Bum Phillips, both publicly and among his players. His players loved him, 
and he won. I mean, he he got the Oilers further than anybody since the early 60s when, of course, they won the AFL championship. But, you know, most, most of us don't even remember that. I, was, I think I was born the year that they won the, the AFL championship. So, yeah, and the fact that, you know, Bum, Bum Phillips was fired, I remember it was New Year's Eve of 1980. It was right after the 1980 season when it, it was the third year in a row that the Oilers had gotten to the playoffs. They were knocked out in the first round by the Raiders. And you may remember, Robert, that was the year that uh, they had traded Dan Pastorini for Ken Stabler. And Stabler had come in, faced his old team in the first round, and Oakland promptly knocked them out. And Bud Adams fired Bum Phillips at that point. And I just, I mean, the talk shows, you, you think they go crazy now with the DeAndre Hopkins thing. Man, it was going crazy then. You know, why in the hell did he fire Bum Phillips? So, you know, that and, and the whole Astrodome fiasco and then just cutting and running to to, uh, to Nashville. Of course, they, they played some games in Memphis. They didn't even have a stadium yet in, in Tennessee that they had to play a couple of years in a couple of different stadiums before they built one. But it was obviously for the money. But Bud Adams was one of the worst owners in regard to PR, I think, in sports history. He just, you know, anytime, thank goodness he was behind the scenes most of the time. Because when he did open his mouth, he usually put his foot in it. Yeah, he was a 100% jerk. And I, I just... I, I, I had a hard time putting him behind Bill O'Brien, but it, 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 there, like I said, if, if we're doing a Q poll, he might beat him out barely. Uh, you know, I, if you did a Q poll back when the, the Oilers were leaving, obviously it, uh, Bud would have been, he, he would have fired way past Bill O'Brien. But I just think in general, uh, O'Brien, I've never seen anybody that is just hated by Literally everybody, number three on my list, since you already mentioned you're number three, I got Jimmy Williams because when you're booed by your own fans at all-star game introductions, that's bad. Yeah, that is pretty bad. I don't, I can't even think of, wow, I'm trying to go down the list of, of all the, the coaches. And of course we'll, we'll save Bill O'Brien. Cause you know, he's going to get booed if and he has been booed already. Jimmy Williams is probably, you know, he was, um, he he was definitely he, and he wasn't really a personable kind of guy, you know, even among his players, among the media. He wasn't well liked by by a lot of people. Manager's decision. Yeah, manager's decision. I think that was his big thing. He he was uh, number 4 on my list. Number 4 on my list and I know there's going to be some fans today that, you know, why isn't he higher? Why isn't he above Jimmy Williams? But uh I I, I don't know. I I got Mike Fires at number 4 and you know, Fires is the first player I could come up with on this list. Uh, more, more guys are going to be hated in management, but Mike Fires, as a player, as a Houston player, uh, he he. And I, the other thing is, I couldn't think of anybody. I don't know if you got anybody on your list like this. I couldn't think of anybody that's like a, a non-Houston player that was hated more than my my top five of of Houston players, and 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 also, of course, management. Well, yeah, unless you put Tom Brady in there and all the times he beat the Texans. But, you know, I, I toyed with the idea of putting Mike Fires on this list. He probably should be on mine, especially now. Of course, it, it came after he left the Astros. But, I mean, even when he was with the team, he had flashes of brilliance. I mean, he pitched the no-hitter, and he got them through part of the summer when the pitching rotation was, uh, you know, riddled with injuries. But, uh, you know, now, of course, he's going to be remembered for none of that except the fact that, He's the one who who blew the whistle on the Astros. So, yeah, it'd be hard to argue with, with Mike Fires being on the list. 
My number five, and, and this is a throwback, and I just just because I remember what it was like then, I have former Astros owner John McMullen on my list because what he did, first of all, he fired Tal Smith after the 1980 season when the Astros made the playoffs for the first time because he wanted his Yankees buddy Al Rosen to, to take in and take over. And then, even though he signed Nolan Ryan in 1980, he let him walk away in 1988 because he thought that no other team would really want him. He didn't want to pay him more money, first of all. And he figured Nolan was washed up and that nobody else was going to grab him. Well, as some of you probably know, the rest is history. He ended up signing with the Rangers, that, that hated team from Dallas, and finished his career with the Rangers. So John McMullen was not a popular guy at that particular time among the fans, among the media. He wasn't very personable to begin with. So he was number five on my list. So, yeah, my number five, and, and McMullen's a good one. My number five is Brock Osweiler. And I considered, oh, here, yeah. here were some of my other ones that I considered at number five. I considered Ken Giles, Rick Smith, uh, <laughs> Oilers old GM Lad Herzog. But nobody in sports can be a bigger lightning rod than a bad quarterback, Steven. So I went with Brock there. Good good choice. That, that's a great choice. You know, what, what got me about Brock Osweiler is that when he went in a press conference, you know, he was the total opposite of Bill O'Brien. He could BS anybody in a press conference. I mean, he had it down. I mean, you, you, you watch him in a press conference and you think Brock Osweiler is just the greatest guy in the world, great teammate, got along with the coach, uh, anything but. You know, not only did he did he suck on the field, but, you know, apparently he, he didn't get along with some of the Texans, including Bill O'Brien, not that a lot of people don't seem to get along with him. But, uh, yeah, that's that's a great choice for number five with Brock Osweiler for sure. Yeah, it was tough for a lot of Houston sports fans to pick in a fight. Uh, well, we want to go with uh, O'Brien or do we want to go with Brock? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah, if people out there, if you've got your five, uh, give us your five. Maybe your five totally differs from our five. And, you know, we, we like the history because we, we kind of lived through that. And we might be forgetting some of the more current guys. And, and definitely we might be forgetting some of the, the players in there. And maybe you think... You know, somebody like Stockton or Malone, I just couldn't put, they're almost like a package or the Utah Jazz are almost a package. So, you know, maybe you might have somebody like that. I know some people, it was about Pujols. For me, it was more about respect than hate, but I know there were people out there that hated Albert Pujols. Um, there there might be other uh, other guys that you, you want to list. Uh, for a second, for a lot of people, it was Cortland Finnegan uh, as far as <laughs> Texans com yeah, opponents. for sure. But yeah, just... Uh, Shoot us a line. It's info at HoustonSportsTalk.net. And, you know, if there's something that you want to talk to us about as far as what's uh, or, or us to talk about, period, um, just let us know. And, of course, uh, this is a perfect time if you've got, you know, if you can send a voicemail and with a question or a comment on the show, we'll run it and we'll respond to you as well. So keep all of that in mind. And, and I, I, my next thing was uh, Daryl Morey because, you know, you talk about all these guys, all these GMs and owners and the people don't like, nobody does more to engender gender animosity towards Houston sports fans than some of the guys that we've just talked about. But I need to take a second to applaud Daryl Morey, who's without question the best management figure in Houston history and engaging the fans. The Rockets did something really brilliant a week ago, and I hope everybody got a chance to catch this. They had a Facebook and YouTube watch party 
for a documentary on the 07-08 season, most famous for the 22-game winning streak. If you didn't see it, the documentary was fantastic. Go watch it. They've still got it up on YouTube, I'm sure. But it's an hour and 20 minutes long. And if that wasn't good enough, Daryl Morey gave a sensational running commentary on Facebook, Stephen. And I was, you know, I was one of the people that he answered questions with in real time among many of the fans. And that's how you do it, Stephen. That's how you do it. You know, what's funny. Just now, as you were saying that, Robert, the thought popped into my head. You know, the Texans could take lessons from Daryl Morey and the Rockets on fan PR. You know, if you think about it, the Rockets have been, well, Daryl in particular, as, as you said, has been very upfront in a lot of things. And the Rockets are winning. Uh, you know, okay, they haven't won an NBA championship since 95, but they have been consistently in the playoffs, even going deep in the playoffs. The Texans are still looking to find their way, and they're being as hush-hush as anything. Or, or when Bill O'Brien does speak, as he did with season ticket holders the other day, uh, he, trying to put a happy face on everything and basically just just covering things, sweeping things under the rug. I, I mean, Daryl Morey, yeah, absolutely. I totally agree with you. Just as far as being the face of the team in regard to the front office, you know, being uh, forward with the fans, sometimes maybe a little too forward, some might say, uh, of some of the things he says, but at least he's out there and being that kind of a personality, then the, the fans, at least in the media, know where he's coming from. So you have to applaud him for that. Yeah, and, and I think a part of this is just that, look, you've got social media. It's a way to connect with fans. Learn something from that. Do something with that. You, you've got this golden opportunity, and there's no way any of the management from the Astros or the Texans could pull something like that off because Dusty Baker and James Click just came to Houston, so they don't have the history. Bill O'Brien would just get a string of vitriol and, and, and hate if he, if he tried to get in on any sort of conversation. But my best idea for the Astros – just maybe the Astros could do this right now would be a documentary on the 04 05 season. Now that Rockets deal, I mean, they spent years on that, but you could do a documentary on the 04 05 season with the memorable comeback from the dead that they had that year, their first trip to the world series, maybe Phil Garner doing the running commentary on that. What do you think? Oh, scrap iron. Yeah. He'd be perfect for that. Absolutely. Yeah. It's just an idea. I mean, I was just trying to think of like who could do it. And uh, that's my best idea. And I, with the Texans, I don't know what you do right now. The players could do stuff, you know, if they were if they were creative with that. But we we just don't see any way. I mean, you and I don't see any way that Cal McNair and Bill O'Brien could do anything with the fans at this point because it's kind of like they're a lost cause among among Texans fans. Well, they're a lost cause because I mean, now it, it's probably a bit late to suddenly do an about face and suddenly become friendly with the fans and, and maybe being a little more revealing. I mean, that's something that you need to do at the beginning. And that's what Daryl Morey did really from the get-go. Since he's been with the Rockets since, what, 2006, I believe? He's been that way from the beginning. Bill O'Brien has been this way from the beginning. You know, Cal McNair and, and even Bob McNair he didn't say a whole lot. He, he probably he said more than Cal has. But, yeah, it, it's a little bit late to try to suddenly win the fans over now that you – who you are is who you are. And I don't see Bill O'Brien or Cal McNair or even Jack Easterby changing anytime soon. So now I, I don't think that's going to happen. A couple more things. The last week, uh, the sports world lost a legend who had been living here in Houston uh, when he passed away. Stephen, when we were kids, the Harlem Globetrotters were always something you look forward to on TV. And Curly Neal was my personal 
favorite of those guys. And if you're too young to remember, I posted a video of the Globetrotters from the old wide world of sports days with Howard Cosell on the call. Go take a quick look at his incredible dribbling and Steph Curry-like shooting range. I mean, it's just wonderful to see that old stuff from 1978. Stephen, just sad to say goodbye to him. Yeah, it is. And, you know, Curly Neal was with the Globetrotters at a time when the Globetrotters were, were still trying to find their identity and, and make a name for themselves. And he played with them for 22 seasons. I, I always thought his nickname was interesting because it, it was kind of a tongue-in-cheek reference, you know, from the coach at the time, Bobby Milton, who, who gave it to him. You know, it was, it was kind of a tongue-in-cheek reference to his uh, signature shaved head. And he, was, of course, was named after Curly of the Three Stooges. And the nickname and the hairstyle stuck. So, yeah, quite a quite a interesting player. And, and the Globetrotters were, as I said, kind of finding their identity. But Curly Neal, he was one of the players that, that really helped them gain the name recognition that, that they certainly have now. 22 years with the Globetrotters from 63 to 85. He played in over 6,000 games, 97 different countries. And Stephen... I'm pretty sure he was undefeated in all those games. Yeah, I'm pretty sure, you know, even the UCLA Bruins couldn't match, you know, what the Globetrotters did as, as far as being undefeated. And, you know, they, they were even featured. He was one of them. Um, they were featured on Gilligan's Island. If, if Some of you may remember the old show Gilligan's Island from the 60s and 70s where the Globetrotters were, were playing a team of robots. And I think the, the final score was something. It was a, like a close game. It was a 101 to 100. The Globetrotters beat them. So it was, you know, so they were even interested not only on ABC Wild World of Sports, but they were featured on some other TV shows, including Gilligan's Island. Yeah, back in the day, they were everywhere. They were on the Love Boat, Scooby Doo. Yeah, Scooby Doo was another one, right? The White Shadow. There was even an animated Globetrotters cartoon in the 70s where Curly provided his own voice to that. And I just. Let's hear from, you know, let's hear from him. Uh, he was Fred Neal, known as Curly Neal. Uh, let's talk to, I want to hear from him about how he became a Globetrotter when he graduated from Johnson City Smith University in Charlotte, North Carolina. Let's, let's listen to a conversation uh, that I found on, on YouTube that's pretty interesting. I was drafted, you know, by uh, four other NBA teams, the New York Knicks, Detroit Pistons, Baltimore Bullets, and the St. Louis Hawks, and the Fabulous Globetrotters. But as an NBA player, you know, you had to pay your own way. Free agency, you know, you had to pay your uh, plane fare back and forth to camp. So the Globetrotters, Abe Saperstein, which was the owner-originator of the team, and uh, he invited me to camp in Chicago, Illinois, at DePaul University. Stan, 125 guys from all over the United States trying out for five positions. And you made it. As basketball players, I made it. I was one of the lucky five in the uh, the rest is history. Now, why do you think you stayed doing that? I mean, the money back then wasn't as great in the NBA back, you know, 45 years ago. Well, determination, ago. dedication. I always wanted to be a professional basketball player, right. no matter who I played for, you know. So uh, I was a basketball player first. And then the learning of the hoopla, the spinning the ball on your finger, I had to learn that from my teammates. You know, Wilt, Meadowlock, Lemon, Geese, Osby, you know, the guys that played with me during those times. And Stephen, uh, he mentioned this guy named Wilt Chamberlain. And in case you're wondering who he was talking about, that's who he was a globetrotter. Wilt Chamberlain was a globetrotter. That's right. It, you know, what's interesting about Curly Neal's, he did have offers to play in the NBA, but, it, you know, he, he was more interested in playing for the globetrotters. I and mean, you think about that nowadays, most players, I, I would say, 
probably want to play in the NBA, the first and foremost. But Curly Neal, he, he could have played in the NBA, but he decided the Globetrotters were a better fit and, and a bigger appeal to him. So that's where he went. You know, we've talked a lot on this show about how Houston athletes step up and, you know, they help the community and just another last couple of weeks where they've done their job. Big ups to Justin Verlander, who said he's donating his week's uh, major league paycheck every week from the Astros to a different organization. And Verlander and his wife, Kate Upton, will highlight that group's contributions uh, to the coronavirus pandemic, too. So good stuff from him. Daniel House donated 20000 to the Houston Food Bank over the last few weeks. George Springer donated 100000 to Minute Maid Park employees. Mike D'Antoni gave 100000 to the Greater Houston COVID-19 Recovery Fund. Deshaun Watson had hundreds of meals delivered to nurses and staff at Ben Taub Hospital. Uh, Correa and McCullers did something similar at Houston Meth- Methodist. And, you know, I, I don't know. Am I, am I forgetting anybody? There's been so uh, much. Jose Altuve and his wife, Nina, I think, donated a bunch of meals, too. I, I think I saw the other day. So they, you know, they've been getting into the act, too. So, yeah, the, the players are coming. through. You know, sports, Robert, is it, it even though, you know, in, in years past, sports was was kind of the, the medicine that we needed to, to escape. Well, even though there isn't sports right now, it, it's still kind of the medicine when you look and see that so many players, coaches, you know, people involved in sports are actually getting out in front of this and helping out in this great time of need that, you know, we, we just, as we said off the top, none of us are familiar with this. So it's, it's good to see these players stepping forward like that. Yeah, I think four of them, four NBA players gave their plasma as a way to give antibodies back to try to heal some of the people that are, are, are dealing with this. Uh, they've, you know, kind of volunteered that. So that's another part of the story. And also, you know, speaking of the virus, just want to mention the passing of former Houston Oiler kicker, Tom Dempsey, who died of complications on Saturday. He was actually in a senior living center, also dealing with Alzheimer's and dementia. So other health issues besides COVID, but obviously that was the, the kind of thing that put him over the top. And Stephen, Dempsey was one of the most inspiring and I feel like kind of nearly forgotten stories in NFL history. He's best known for being the Saints kicker who had that game-winning 63-yard field goal to beat the Lions back in 1970. You might have seen this highlight over the years. It was the longest field goal in history for 28 years in NFL history, and he did it with a clubbed foot. And that's the incredible part of the whole story. Yeah, that is incredible. And I honestly thought it was one of those records that yeah, maybe it would be broken at some point, but I, I thought even now that it would still be standing. But man, that's an accomplishment. I mean, so you're trying to kick a field goal, you know, 55 to me over 55 is pretty darn far. You get to 63, and it's at the end of the game, and who knows, his adrenaline might have just been pumping the right way or something. But yeah, the fact that he had a club foot just makes it all the more remarkable, and that it stood. As long as it did, I, I actually thought it would stand longer than it did. He only played for the Oilers for five games back in, this was in 1977. People might forget that the goalpost, they used to be at the goal line instead of the end line. So his last second legendary field goal was actually from the Saints' own 37-yard line. Mm. That's crazy. That's right. And yeah. it's also worth noting that the NFL, because it's always been the no-fun league and kind of jerks about everything, changed the rule because of Dempsey, they made it where any shoe worn by a player with an artificial limb on his kicking leg must have a kicking surface that conforms to that of a normal kicking shoe. 
So there you go. I, I just yeah. have one more quick story, Stephen, though, on, on this whole whole deal. And this is why Dempsey has just got a special place for me. So t- t- take you back a little bit to when I was in college as part of the journalism program at Missouri. Everyone worked for the NBC affiliate. So we basically had on-the-job training at a real TV station. It was it was and is probably still the only journalism school in the country that's connected with a network affiliate. So one of my very first stories was a profile of a high school kicker named David Soche. Like Dempsey, he was born with club feet and missing fingers on both hands. It took him until his senior season, but he finally made it to varsity as his school's kicker. And two quotes that stick out with me from that from that story is when I spoke to his mom and she said, the day David was born, the doctor told her something that she never forgot. He said, quote, this will be a handicap for this boy only if you make it one. And the other quote I remember was from David's teammate and one of the team captains. His first words when we asked him about David was, quote, he's got a heart as big as his chest. Steven, you don't get quotes like that from high school football players. You do this for a living. You know what I'm talking about. No, absolutely. Yeah, that's that's great to hear. And that's that I think that's a great way to in the podcast, you know, with something inspirational, especially considering all the bad news that we've been hearing, that that's just something that that warms my heart that we can uh, kind of put at the end of the show. Just want to remind any new listeners that if you're looking for something to listen to while you're stuck at home, check out our throwback Thursdays. This past Thursday, it was ex Houston Arrows voice Jerry Trupiano with memories of Gordy Howe, who would have turned 92 last week. Did you go to any Arrows games? Back in the day, Stephen. You know, I didn't. I was away a lot, but I followed them very closely, and I was I was probably about eleven or twelve when Gordy Howe signed with the Arrows, and I just remember, you know, I, I grew up listening to Jerry Truppiano do those hockey games. That really, if it wasn't for Gordy Howe and the Houston Arrows, I probably wouldn't be a hockey fan because I'm still a hockey fan today, even though, you know, almost forty years after the Arrows left town and the WHA folded and merged with the NHL, so. No, I, I did not get to attend a game personally, but I sure wanted to. In my boredom this week, I thought, let me look and see what a Gordie Howe jersey goes. And the only one I could find was a signed Gordie Howe jersey, which was for $500. I, I might have seen some other stuff, but that's what sticks out. So a signed Gordie Howe Houston Arrows jersey going for 500 bucks. And Stephen, this is what I ended up buying on, uh, on, on one of the websites this week. I got me a Houston Oilers trucker cap the old one of the old trucker caps that they used to do with uh the oilers the old Derek on the front and everything it was pretty darn cool i was pretty excited to get that and then i also got a quad city river bandits baseball cap hey quad city river bandits well unfortunately even they aren't playing right now so well that's a pretty quite a contrast of uh, sports memorabilia there robert i'm impressed yeah, we'll see what I, I come up with in the next week. But <laughs> I, I, my budget's not much because, like everybody else, I'm I'm not working. It's uh, I was going to say, I hope you didn't pay a premium for either one of those things. Maybe, well, maybe the Oilers thing, but the Oilers cap. Yeah, no, though, uh, it wasn't bad. The Oilers cap wasn't bad. It was okay. definitely doable. And you know, go you can go look. I think they might still have a couple left over on eBay. There's somebody locally that's selling that. Uh, so yeah. Anyway. Uh, Thanks for joining us, everybody. We hope you're staying healthy. We wish everybody luck as they deal with all this. And uh, we, we're just trying to do a little bit of something to keep get, keep your mind off of it. Tell your friends about us, as we always mention, and we'll, we'll talk to you again very soon. 
You're listening to Houston Sports Talk. Don't forget to follow Houston Sports Talk on Facebook and Twitter. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, the Google Podcast app, or the Stitcher app. You can support us by giving us a five-star review on iTunes or by telling your friends about us. Spread the word, everybody. Thanks for listening. Touchdown!